You're listening to A Step Forward, episode 41, where we are asking the question, what is our role in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement if we are itinerant teachers? We're joined by my good friend, Sidnaya, and she is going to open our eyes, bring us some new perspective, and really give us some things to think about. Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for educators who want to help their students lead their most independent and successful lives. I'm Cassie Maloney. As an orientation and mobility specialist, I believe that you don't need to be perfect in order to be effective. Join me this week and every week for inspirational and informational ideas to help you make a significant impact in your students' lives as we explore the notion that in order to make progress, all you need to do is take a step forward. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. I'm so glad that you're here. As always, today, I am joined by my ride or die, my BFF, Sidnaya, and she's going to have a really cool opinion conversation we're gonna just jam out as best friends do and really dive deep into the topic of what is our role as itinerant teachers in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement what can we talk about what should we talk about what should we stay away from we're going to answer those questions and some questions I had gotten from Instagram when I asked a while ago overall This podcast will hopefully enlighten you and shine a light into where we can go as itinerant teachers. If we aren't the primary person in that student's team or their lives, where are our boundaries and how do we approach this delicate situation? Can't wait to dive in. So let's just go to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Sid. Come meet all of my (laughs) podcast friends. I'm so glad that you're here and I'm so glad that I get to introduce you to everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cass. Since our group, our community doesn't really know you, will you say a little bit about yourself and your background? So I'm a teacher with the visually impaired and an O&M instructor. I work for a fairly large school district. I've been a TBI for about 13 years, and Cassie and I have go back a long way. I've known her for such a long time. And you're also an O&M. Yes. Cannot forget that part. So most of you guys don't know that Sid and I are, I'm going to just call you my best friend, my ride or die, and we have built this relationship really on heavy conversations over the years Mm -hmm. and we've really helped each other go through a lot of like adult-ish that has happened and when the Black Lives Matter movement really started picking up steam and I started diving into it on my own then I started thinking about okay this is great for myself and my own children but what happens when I go back to work And I'm no longer the adult in charge of a child's life when I'm the related service staff member. And I'm not even the main team member creating their curriculum. What are my roles and responsibilities? Where's my line? How does that work when we're in a situation in a country that 
could be divided in some places. And I know that I have my stance on how I feel about things, but what does that mean as far as like professionally? So I came to you and you really helped me sort through my own thoughts that felt at the time like they were a nebulous cloud. And you really helped me to like categorize them and to put them into words and to see how I can still be an effective teacher, even Mm -hmm. though it's going to be a much different role than, of course, working with my own children. Yeah. So I don't want to claim that I have all the answers because I don't. (laughs) But I think that we've built a relationship where we can be honest with each other. And I could, you know, tell you how I felt about things that you had questions about in a very real and honest way. And you kind of took it all in and then kind of interpreted it in your own way. And, you know, we're able to digest and like, you know, do your own thing with it. So I just don't want everyone thinking that this is, I don't want my words to be like the way it has to be because I, you know, obviously when it comes to stuff like this, it's very touchy. People do things their own way and have, you know, their own opinions about it. I can just give people my own perspective and how I have attacked it and my own point of view about it. As somebody who's affected by it and someone who is black and has to deal with that kind of inequality every day, I can just give you my point of view from my lens. I think that's wonderful. And that's a really great place for all of us to start and allowing us in this conversation to be writing in pencil. We don't know everything that's coming down the pipe. Our world is changing almost on a minute by minute basis right now. And yeah, kind of like O&M is Every teacher has their own style and they're going to give that student a tool for their tool belt. Maybe maybe just sharing how you've processed it and and us talking about it can just be one tool in somebody's tool belt. I like how you put it. (laughs) Nice cast. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why you're the host of the podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's why I own it. (laughs) I actually got a metaphor correct. This time, typically I get metaphors so wrong and I have to like start over multiple times. So I'm Wait, very proud metaphor? of myself. A tool in a tool belt. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You rock that. <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to hand over the mic to you and you can start the conversation by sharing your thoughts about our roles and responsibilities as related service staff when it comes to addressing Black Lives Matter movement with our students. Ooh, that's a heavy one. So when I think of, you know, Black Lives Matters, any racial injustice topic, in my mind, I think people tend to make it more complicated than it really is. As TBIs, we do a lot for our students that's, you know, I think that it's completely okay to talk to my students about voting, about the importance of being citizens and knowing the issues. And when I talk about Democrats or Republicans, most people would say or think like, it's fine to talk about politics in that way. Listing the attributes of Democrats traditionally and the attributes of the Republican Party traditionally, it's like a civics lesson, right? And no one thinks twice about that. And when I am teaching my, or, you know, reinforcing that civics lesson and helping my students understand what the different parties represent, I'm not telling them at all to vote a certain way or think a certain way. But I am explaining to them kind of broadly what those parties mean, right? So I take the same tract when I think about racial inequality. It's not necessarily about telling our students what to believe. It's about 
getting an understanding about what's going on in the world. Because a lot of times our students don't know. Neither they're, you know, no one's told them, they're very sheltered. Maybe they're not plugged into media outlets. How do kids nowadays, and I'm thinking, you know, in general, how do kids get their information? Instagram, Snapchat, you know, they're getting it through social media sources. And of course, sometimes from their parents or from the dinner table. But a lot of times it's through social media. And our students commonly don't have access to those pieces of social media. So they're missing out on a huge piece of the puzzle. They're missing out on so much of the conversation, which kind of ties in to what I was speaking about before when it comes to voting and wanting to educate my students about like the voting process, because unfortunately, a lot of, you know, young adults in our population are in the VI population don't vote for those same reasons. No one's talking to them about politics. So anyway, to bring it back to racial injustice, I see it as kind of a being the bridge, again, not telling somebody what to think, but letting them know what's happening in the world around them. I approach it in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. As somebody who's a trained TVI, but I focus just on O&M, I can see why we don't. We've been brought up to avoid topics like that, avoiding politics, avoiding religion, avoiding money. And in doing so, there's possibly that we might have caused an injustice if the student's parents, because they see the disability differently than we do, they also haven't talked to their own children about it. I can totally see how we've just unconsciously created that gap. Right. And I think that because we have students who might be completely blind and can't see, you know, the perception is, well, they don't see color, right? So this issue doesn't matter for them because they're not racist. They can't see color anyway. But there's a flip side of that. They still need to be a part of the conversation because racism is still happening around them. And you and I have like talked a lot about being anti-racist and speaking up, right? They can still be that. They can still be the person who speaks out against things if they even know what's existing around them. If they have no clue because nobody's taking the time to talk about it, how can they even speak up if they hear or know that things around them, racist things are happening around them? You know? I do. I do. And again, like me sitting here as a white woman and thinking about approaching that conversation with my students makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel like I don't necessarily know what the best thing to say is. I don't know what the best thing to do is. And again, just being raised in kind of a culture where you don't talk about the uncomfortable Mm -hmm. conversations. You don't start them. You don't approach them. But now here we are. And as adults, we've been indoctrinated to believe this. And some of us have been indoctrinated to like on one end, be colorblind ourselves and not see color and may not even understand fully the systematic racism. I see racism as two separate entities almost. There's like a personal bias and you may not have that, but there's a systemic racism that you cannot deny in this country. There are facts and there are Mm -hmm. statistics and it's very, the numbers are there to show. Right. Yeah. 
And we've had to create laws to mm-hmm. allow black people to live in certain neighborhoods. Like, hello, that <laughs> alone. Yep. Like you and I talked about maternal mortality rates being higher in women of color than others. Gosh, you talked about you just referenced redlining, which is not allowing people of color to get mortgages in certain areas. I mean, these are well-documented things, not things that you or I are just making up, right? But I guess to even start the conversation with a student about it, you have to know about it yourself. Like you have to take some time to educate yourself before you can even open up the conversation, you know, with a student. Right. You do have to do the inner work and the learning and researching and figuring out. But the positive thing is like with this movement, so many resources have come to the forefront. Like it's not hard to find information. Before George Floyd happened and Black Lives Matters had a, another a kind of a resurgence, I could, you know, it might have been a little, a little harder. You might have had to do a little more digging. But now, currently, it's very accessible to get more information. So that's the good thing. You know, if you want to learn, you can. That's true. Where would you suggest somebody who wants to learn more about racism and anti-racism, where would you suggest that they go? So I found a really vibrant community on Instagram with like really great resources. The Conscious Kid is a wonderful Instagram page. Oh, that one pops in my head. There's so many, but I don't know them off the top of my head. We'll put all these links in the show notes for you guys so that you have easy access to them. They'll be at alliedindependenceonline.com. So that way you can just click. I do love following the Contrast Kid. And I love the fact that they also give money directly to the people. Yeah, they had a COVID rent fund going on, but they just have a lot of good resources. I have to look because like under this pressure, I can't find them all. That's but, um, fine. The Contrast Kid is a really good resource. Oh gosh. There's a really good book. White Fragility is a really good book. I know we were talking about that. And I'll compile a short list for you to put in the show notes because in this like moment. Yeah, it's fine. And then like the conversation is kind of dying. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. (laughs) Okay. So first step is just to pick up a book. I'm in the middle of anti-racist. Oh, how to be an anti-racist. Yes. How to be an anti-racist. That was the other one that I was thinking of. How to be an anti-racist. Yeah. It's so good. And then of course, I opened it and I was like, of course I choose the one book written by a white person. That one isn't written by a white person. Yeah, it is. How to be anti-racist. Oh, and that's not the book I was thinking about. No, White Fragility. Sorry, White Fragility. Oh, white, yes. White Fragility is written by a white, a white woman. But How to be an yeah, anti-racist yeah. is written by a black man. Yeah, that one's next on my list. But you know, me and Kindles, I just like, I get, that's where I'm like, I'm in Instagram now. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I was reading. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. It's heavy. Like those books you need to give your full attention to. It's not something that you can be split. Like, oh, I'm going to check my email and listen to this book, or I'm going to like have my kids running around me, you know, like needing my attention and try to tackle the book. Like there's just a lot of information and you need to kind of like allow yourself some time, like some me time, um, one-on-one time with yourself to read it, to read them. That's true. I did actually notice when I was reading it that it did change my perspective 
on a few things. And it called me out on my stuff because I've carried a lot of shame for being a white person, you know, where we grew up in, there was so much more diversity. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of what I thought was racism towards white people. And I'm learning that, no, that's prejudice, but not racism. Mm -hmm. But there was, I was told a lot, like, if you do this, you're acting like a white person. If you like go outside without your shoes on, you're acting like a white person. You, mm. like, and the connotation was acting like a white person is bad. You don't mm-hmm. want to do that. You don't want to go to court with jeans on. White people do that. Things like that. And from, you know, the Hispanic friends, black friends. But then I moved here. I'm just going to go off a little tangent. And I noticed that I had like predominantly white friends. And I was like, what is up with this? <laughs> Granted, I was like working at a school, special ed. And I was just kind of like, maybe it's just because of where I work, mm-hmm. you know? But it turns out that Austin had those red line laws in place until the 60s. Oh, really? See, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's... and Well, and not to interrupt you, but if you think about it, I mean, this kind of blows me away. Like, the civil rights movement, my grandparents were a part of that. You know what I mean? Like, it hasn't been that many years. <laughs> like, it's been a generation. It's been one generation. Ruby Bridges, a Black girl who integrated a white school, predominantly white school, she entered kindergarten and integrated that school. She's now in her 60s. Like, Literally one generation. So, you know, that just shows what a short time period it's been. So we're talking like 400 years of slavery, and then it's been like 60 years of civil rights movement. <laughs> like, a, like, if you think of it, I think in that perspective, it's not hard to understand how it could be that very little has changed, especially when there have been these systems in place to really kind of halt or slow down progress. You know what I mean? I do. And I hadn't thought about it that way. I've thought about stuff like that from like the women's movement and how far we've come as women who are in the world working. But I honestly hadn't thought about it as like the civil rights movement when you think about the fact that Ruby Bridges is still alive. Oh, yeah. And she's young. To me, 64, 65, you still have a decade or two or even three. (laughs) You know, that's she's a young in my opinion. You know what I mean? So. So for us, you and I are in our 30s, like our grandparents. hmm yeah. Exactly. Like literally grandparents mm-hmm. could have been a part of that civil rights movement. God, I forgot what they said. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been, God, I forgot how old. Not that old. <laughs> like if you were still alive today, I should Google that, how old you would be. Yeah, let's Google that real quick. I feel like we're I mean, totally going to He could Rogan still feasibly right be still, you know, if he had not been assassinated. Yeah. He wouldn't be so old that we felt like, oh, you know, he might have died by now. Like, no, he probably would have been late 20s, early 30s when he was assassinated. Yeah, he was 39 when he was assassinated. He was born in 1929. So he would have been, he was born 10 years after my grandparents. So he would have been old. You're right. He would have been in his 90s. Yeah. But still, there are people who have beaten COVID who are older than that. (laughs) This is true. So, I mean, the point is that that movement is not that old and the systems that have been in place to oppress Black people have been going on for far longer, far longer. So it's going to take a lot more time and like focused energy, like focused 
in order to undo those things. And if we look at the world around us right now, I mean, it's really clear, at least, you know, what I'm seeing is that young people, Gen Z, right? These kids that are like in middle school right now and have access to TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. None of these young kids are on Facebook, Snapchat. (laughs) They're the ones really leading this movement. They are very, I mean, to me, they're like the epitome of being anti-racist. You know, they have a very loud voice and they know how to use technology to push, you know, that agenda forward. But we have our little population, our little, you know, our little VI population, which is super small percentage, right? Who, like I said, they don't have the technology necessarily to be a part of this movement. And they might want to be, but if we don't open that door and tell them that it's an option, again, no one's telling anybody what to do or what to believe. I think people get really caught up. It's not our role to tell somebody how to think or what to do. You're right. It's not. We're not telling anybody what to do, but we are giving them information, which we do all the time as TVIs because there's so many things that our kids don't have access to just based on their vision. So again, we're the bridge for like a million things. So why can't we be just the bridge for this and then let them take the information and process it however they want, you know, just lay it out there and give them some facts. And then what they want to do with that is their choice. But I don't think there's anything wrong with speaking about it, even in speaking about it in historical context or a civics context, if that's what you're comfortable with and you don't want to go any farther than that. Just talking about what's happening in the world, having a conversation about what's happening in the world. I think that's fair to them. I think that they need that. You brought up a really great point and two actually really great points, which I feel like right now, I'm going to just triangulate all of this. You mentioned that the kids today (laughs) are really good at technology. (laughs) I know, right? I remember when I tried to play Bone Thugs and Harmony in the school (laughs) band. And the first time the kid was like, what is this, miss? And I was like, oh my God. Anyway. We could have had these kids. That's what trips me out. Go ahead. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) So, okay, if we really look at what our role as TBIs and O&Ms are, and we're looking at the PLATH, I know that our rules where I live have changed to where now on our PLATH, we are present levels, however you want to call it. Uh They now have to include, yeah, they now have to include like a sentence or two about what like their cited peers are able to do to justify the need for services. Mm, Okay. You know, because we often were like, oh, the kid's doing great. And you're like, oh, 17 year olds can't button their pants. Like, great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. So <laughs> if we're looking at like, this is the norm mm-hmm. using technology to this level. And if we just look mm-hmm. at whether you think this situation was right or wrong, whatever you think about it, the facts remain that there was a group of young people who bought a bunch of tickets to a rally on purpose didn't show mm-hmm. up with the expressed interest from their party to have the rally not be filled and then mm-hmm. other things so if that's the norm to use mm-hmm. technology in that way mm-hmm. then by us teaching the students to use technology in a way that 
is beneficial to their own lives, like we still have a long way to go if we're going to really like seeking the norm. And then you also mentioned that they're using social media for like they're on social media and they're able to share their ideas and our students are left out of that conversation. I think because of social media, things are going to change faster. Absolutely. Because the communication is like, and it's global. So while it used to be, you had your little community of people, you went to your high school or your middle school, and those are the people that you touched. Those are the people that you were around for your life, right? And if you had an idea that was different than those people, who do you share that with, right? Now, there's no, it's like an open access. If you have a belief that's different than the people in your little community, you go on any of these social media apps and you find the community that jives with whatever you're believing, right? And then you find other people and other people and like then you form your own little community online that supports your ideology. So it's a whole different world right now. And we see it happening a lot with, you know, on social media with kids who have completely different ideas than their parents do. And they're having to talk to their parents about heavy, heavy subject matter and explain to their parents who are of a different generation why they're feeling the way they do or like breaking down racism to their parents who might not even think that that's a thing. You know, you see that a lot. Um, I've seen many TikToks and Instagram posts highlighting stuff like that. Yeah. And kind of what you mentioned, just knowing how Instagram and TikTok, specifically those two work. Mm-hmm. It is very global because you don't know mm-hmm. the people that you're coming in contact with. Where Facebook, if you just use the feed, you probably know those people. Oh, yeah. So it but these young kids can't... are not using Facebook. No way. That's yeah, for old people. No. <laughs> but, but it is the old people who have to have these conversations. <laughs> absolutely. <It is>. Absolutely. <laughs> but we do also find our, like, our groups. Facebook yeah. has our group. So I think that you make a really good point in that one of the things that we need to be as teachers, no matter what we believe in, we need to be really making sure that our students have access to the technology, that Mm -hmm. they know their civil rights. Mm -hmm. Or just know what's happening. That is not necessarily a lesson. Like you're not sitting down and teaching like, okay, God, like, let me talk about, let's talk about the world and what's happening in the world. No, like you should have I mean, as a TBI, my students who I see directly on a daily basis, I have a connection with. I mean, I literally see them every single day. We've built a rapport. So I'm able to talk about things in a conversational manner without it being like a sit-down lesson. Like, let's talk about racism now. Like, no, like, we're just talking about what's happening in this world that we all live in, you know? And allowing the student to like bounce questions back to us to get clarification or just to have discussion. I mean, that's, I think, part of the benefit, the joy of being a TVI is that a lot of times, most of the time, we're working uh, one-on-one with our students. So there is the time and the connectedness to have a one-on-one conversation and we can really get in depth about things that they need more clarification and understanding about. And we do this in like, in so many other ways with them. You know what I mean? I know I've said this before, but I feel like people make it seem like a much bigger deal. I think maybe because they feel like racism is like talking about politics and 
what was the other there's like three things you should never talk about <laughs> george carlin said racism <laughs> sex and religion okay well no, there's the money money sex, money, religion. sex and religion right so i guess people just get kind of like <gasps> they don't want any backlash against parents or any backlash against administrators and i get it i understand that but i think that it's all in your delivery model meaning how you deliver the information, how you speak to your student. And it's also about making it a conversation and not trying to sway or tell your student how to think. That's not what we're here for. It's to give them information about what's happening in the world so that they can be more productive citizens and be on a more level playing field with their peers. Because it's not fair that their peers know what's going on. Like their peers, like I said, are plugged into the technology and the social media. So their parents are not telling them necessarily. Maybe some are. But most of the time, these kids are forming their own opinions and having conversations within their friend groups based on what they're seeing on social media, Snapchat, whatever interactions they're having with their friends. We know that our students lack in those areas. They do not have the technology. And sometimes they don't have the social skills. So they don't have the friend groups. So where are they getting the information from? Nowhere. So they're completely ignorant to what's happening. That's not fair. That's not fair to them. And so many other ways we use our role as TVIs to help them, you know, make connections in other ways. Why not this? Like what makes this so different? So you mentioned how we can be talking to our students and use it as like a history lesson. I think we could also use it as an O&M lesson going to the polls, learning about technology, things like that. But what would you say to somebody who wants to start this conversation or who wants to engage in a conversation with a student when their student's family is very conservative? That's a great question. I live in a very diverse community, pretty liberal community. So I haven't yet had to deal with that. What I would probably do I guess I would approach it one of two ways. I would approach the family because as a TBI, we should also have good relationships with our families, right? We're dealing with their kids daily or weekly basis and ask if it's okay if I discuss or have conversations about what's happening in the world or about, you know, I probably would keep it broad and ask if it was okay if I talked about current events and things that were happening in this world and have those type of conversations with their child because of what I talked about before. I mean, if the parent wants to know why you want to do that as the TBI, why is that important? How is that your role? I would go back to what I said previously, which is explaining that we are the conduits many of the times for the child to know what's happening. Part of our job is to make sure they're kind of like assist with them being kind of on level with their peers. And that includes them getting information that their peers are getting. And sometimes we as the TBI, you know, we're the person that that student is most comfortable talking to in school about conversations they're hearing around them, but they might not understand. So is it okay if we just talk, if the student and and myself just talk about what's happening? Because it's important that they just know what's happening in this world. And they're not getting it the way other students are getting it more naturally through friendships, technology, and stuff like that. 
So I would approach it that way. And I know I said one of two reasons, but I can't, or one of two ways, but now I can't remember my other way. So we'll just go with that. I would discuss with the parent. If you know they're conservative and you know that they have a certain viewpoint, again, I always approach things from a standpoint of giving information and not trying to sway or teach or indoctrinate a child in any way. That's not my job, obviously, but I am a teacher. So is the parent saying no to the civics teacher when the civics teacher is teaching about the civil rights movement? Probably not. So how is it okay? You know, why is it okay that the civics teacher can teach about the civil rights movement, but we can't talk about just some current events that are happening in the world today? Because things are always happening. You know, our world's moving constantly. Things are constantly changing. So is it okay if we have an open dialogue about just what's happening in the world? And is it okay if I, you know, answer questions that the child has or explain things that they have questions about and do that? That's probably how I would address it. I like that. Thank so. you. I mean, there is no right or wrong and we're all going to fumble or make mistakes, but as long as we're moving forward in some way and as long as we're bringing attention to these issues, there's another topic that we had talked about just in our normal friendship. When I heard about this situation, I, my whiteness came out and I was like, oh, I didn't realize that this was happening too, although it makes sense. And that's the fact that it's more dangerous for our black and minority students to be traveling just in general. And there have been some studies done, one out of Nevada and one out of Portland, Oregon. And basically they found that if you are a black pedestrian, your chances of the Mm -hmm. person driving stopping for you are much lower than if you are a white pedestrian. Sounds like from the studies done, which we'll link to articles in the show notes, they separated out low income and high income areas as well to separate out for that because low income areas have a higher population of black and Hispanic mm-hmm. students, just in people in general, lower, lower social economic status. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about that or if there are any ways that we can look into this or make our students safer as they travel? I mean, I think awareness is something we definitely need to teach as an O&M instructor. I honestly didn't know this until you brought it to me, but to me, this ties directly into how we as service providers, it's kind of our duty to educate and inform our students because these things are affecting them in real time, right? So to tell our students I mean, I think it's completely okay to say, hey, statistically, if you're African-American, if you're Black, if you're a minority, like you said, a car is less likely to stop for you at an intersection, whether you have a cane or not. So when you're doing this street crossing, you have to keep that in mind and make sure that you are being as safe as possible before you execute that crossing. So, I mean, as a student who's blind, why would they think of that? They would, you know, they're just walking, <laughs> they're walking, 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 <laughs> you know, not realizing unless we inform them, unless we let them know that there is another level and that they need to kind of be a little more alert or a little more aware 
of their surroundings and make sure that when they execute that street crossing, that they're 100% sure that, you know, it's safe and there are no cars and all that stuff. Like that directly ties into our job. I don't think there's anything political about that or anything, you know, that I can't imagine a parent being like, I don't want you teaching my child that. They just teach them street crossings. Okay, but not giving them that piece of information could directly impact their safety. And it's not about pushing an agenda. It's just about giving them the facts, studies that have been done, just giving them facts and saying, hey, listen, studies have been done. This is what's been shown. So I want you to have that information so that you can be more aware as you're out here in the community, period. Right. And the numbers, it seems like the numbers are very definitive. Yeah. (laughs) The studies are very definitive. We won't go into the exact numbers here. One thing that I noticed when I was driving around after I had learned about that information, I think a lot of times we as white people to deal with the fact that we care about this population that we aren't necessarily a part of, we might say things like, oh, was that person doing something wrong to kind of like shift the blame. Mm. And I noticed just within myself, I was watching a black person cross the road in front of me. And I was like trying to think about what they were wearing and how high contrast the situation was or like why, if I'm not taking racism into account, why this might be happening just from like a visual standpoint. And there was a little part of me that was like, oh, well, is it because that person's wearing a black shirt and black pants? Is it not high contrast enough? But I kind of, not I kind of, I had to catch myself because we Mm -hmm. can often blame the victim for things Mm -hmm. like that over and over again, just to make ourselves feel better. So if that's something that, you know, anybody in our community finds themselves thinking about, granted, O&M, you have to decrease your risks at all, you know, at all times. Like I was taught when I was younger, if I was going to go out at night, I had to wear a light colored shirt. And that might be the case for other people as well. But yeah, I just wanted to bring that up to say like, hey, this might, if you find yourself trying to blame the victim. And I would say this to that as well. Why does the black person have to be perfect? (laughs) They have to wear the perfect clothes, has to be super high contrast. It has to be, this has to be that. Because if it's not, oh, then it's their fault. Why were they wearing black? You know what I mean? Like, why does it have to be perfection in order for a car to stop for them at the crosswalk or what have you? You know what I mean? But the same isn't the case for the person who's white. They don't have to be perfect. You know, the thought might not be, oh, well, they were wearing a black shirt, so they deserve to get hit. Like, no. No one deserves that, no matter what color shirt they're wearing. (laughs) You know, like, really, we should be what's stopping for everybody at crosswalks, right? So because studies are showing that people are not, and it's skewing to a certain demographic, to me, that plays into what you were talking about before, which is like implicit bias and and systemic racism. I'm going to say violence. (laughs) Implicit bias and systematic racism, right? So... I do think that it's just part of, you know, what we have to do as educators. I think it's part of what we should be doing as educators to like, to talk to our students about these things. And I know it's it's uncomfortable a lot of the time. It requires some self-reflection some of the time, but you know, nothing, 
Oh, there's a quote that I know I'm going to butcher. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not even going to say it because I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> but, you know, if it's not hard, then, you know, like something. Oh, see, there I go, butchering the quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead about it. If it's not hard, it, is it worth it? What? Yeah, well, I don't know. I was going to say, like, you know, things that are worth it are not easy. Or, you know, yeah. like, growth is not easy. It never is. And it shouldn't be, you know? So growing as people or unlearning some of the things that we have held true for a very long time, those things are painful to let go of. But once we can take a step back and take our own hurt feelings out of it and not think of it as, well, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I love all people. What are you talking about? You know, once we can take a step back and understand that racism is so ingrained in our society it's so systemic and it's been passed down from generation to generation there are ideologies that people have that they just kind of grew up thinking this way because that's the way the family thought and passed things down right so now with this movement that is going on it's just a great time to kind of like take a step back think about some of those things and think about how to rewire our brains. And Cassie, it's been so cool. Like, it's been so awesome talking to you because we have such amazing conversations and it's very raw and it's very like no holds barred. And I can like see (laughs) the little, like the wires reconnecting (laughs) and you shifting, like little shifts here, there, here, there, here, there, and doing a lot of personal reflection with yourself and then coming back and asking me like, no, 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 like asking me questions or, you know, just having conversations, I mean questions, like having conversations based on your shifts in thinking. And it's been like so cool. Like I just, it's been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That is so sweet. <laughs> I never want to like make you my token block friend, but you're oh, one no, of no, the no. closest no. to like, hey. Yeah, and I don't think that at all. Like we're friends. You know what I mean? Like we talk about so many other stuff, so much other things outside of like being (laughs) anti-racist. We talk about a million other things in the same raw and unfiltered dialogue. So I know that you're not, you're not using me as the token. We're just friends. (laughs) But I might have to ask you to put on your token hat real quick because we have to wrap this up. Okay. And I'd love for you to give our community. At the end of every podcast episode, I ask our guest, what is one thing that members of our community can do to take a step forward today? It doesn't have to be anything big. You know, we're all just doing our best, taking one step at a time. What piece of advice would you give? Not be afraid to do the work. Not be afraid to be uh, self-reflective in general. And then not be afraid to listen to voices that are different than your own. Actually, that's probably the biggest one. That would be my my one step forward. I would say be open to listening to voices that are not your own. And if those voices are in opposition to what you think or have been raised to think or, you know, as a core belief of yours, don't just shut those other voices down. Listen, because you might learn something new in general and or learn something new about yourself. And that's where the real growth happens. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. It was so nice to be able to chat with you. Of course. Anytime, Cass. (laughs) Here we go.
<laughs> and all of us now. Of course, of course. Oh, well, I will let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know that feeling when you've been rushing around all day, your kids need food, your students need to be scheduled. It's five minutes before your next lesson and you have no plans. Teaching during a pandemic has had many challenges. Wouldn't you agree? One of which being it takes so much longer to plan for a remote O&M lesson than it did to plan for a face-to-face lesson. But that's not a problem anymore because my friend, we have got you covered. Your Allied Independence community stepped up and we've bundled together eight remote O&M lesson plans that can be taught virtually or distance, all created by your community and customizable to your individual students' unique needs in five minutes or less. You want them? I know you do. All you have to do is go to alliedindependenceonline.com forward slash remote, R-E-M-O-T-E, and grab your copy, eight free remote O&M lesson plans. So you can start spending your time doing what you do best. And that, my friend, is teaching. <laughs>